You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. David Otlinger, good to see you. Hello, Dan. Welcome to everyone in the Sophia Meaning of Life Blogging Heads TV audience. Um, I'm here uh, with one of several of my regular partners in crime, David Otlinger. Uh, writes for the Electric Agora, of course, a fine publication. And um, was it univer- former University of Georgia or is it Georgia State? I, I always forget. Uh, Georgia State University of Chicago right. before that. Right, Georgia State University of Chicago. So the man has a, a fine pedigree. And um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, <laughs> good genes, all that. Um, and um, we are here to talk about guns. And um, obviously, the the most recent big event involving guns in the sense of a mass shooting um, is this shooting at the synagogue um, in uh, Pittsburgh. But actually, you and I have both written pieces for the Electric Agora in the past, not that long ago, uh, in the wake of other shootings. You wrote a piece after the Las Vegas shootings, which I think was one of the largest, most spectacular in that sense, kind of, I mean, it was a guy up in a hotel with an assault rifle or several assault rifles, right? Just unloading. Um, and then I wrote one, a fictional state, a, a fictional address by president Obama on guns in 2016. I think yours was in 2017. I want to say I'm not or 2015. I'm not sure. Whenever the Las Vegas shooting was November, 2017, 2017. And, um, I don't even remember which shooting mine was written after. I mean, there was, you know, it's, it's at the point now where I, where I have trouble remembering which school, sh- which which mass shooting we're talking about. It was after Orlando. Orlando, but, okay. But that that is the thing. Um, so yeah, please. Um, why are we doing this, David? Yeah. So you wrote. I I wrote like a piece one major shooting ago, and you wrote one couple major shootings ago because that's how we reckon time now. Right. And, uh, Every year, yeah, what year is it? Oh, it's the third year after the shooting in Orlando, right? Right. And it's it's just become so depressingly monotonous and the conversation is after each of these shootings has become so repetitious. And it seems to have become so stagnant that after um this most recent one, the Pittsburgh one, I haven't really noticed a gun conversation kicking up much at all yeah it's interesting you know what you're right this this one you didn't have the usual nra people coming out well i guess you did have trump say well if there'd only been somebody with a gun inside um but you didn't really have the big sort of news cycle of nra types coming out and saying arm everybody and then the other side coming out and saying well if we just had more gun control this wouldn't happen um um so you're right you think it's exhaustion I think it's exhaustion, and I think it's that the arguments on both sides are very bad, and they don't come in contact with each other very well. Yeah, they're just yelling yeah, at each other. And they don't get down to the core issues. So you and I agree about what the most important arguments are, and that they're very different from the ones people generally hear. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't even – I want to be careful. I don't even know if I think that they're the most important. Um let me let me just sort of tell you how I think about this, and you can tell me what you think. Um, look, it seems to me the most important question is the empirical one, and that is what will actually 
reduce mass shootings, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I am not equipped to answer that question. And apparently nobody is because we don't know the, because otherwise we'd have the answer, right? I mean, this is a matter of dispute and probably it's probably a very difficult question just because of all the variables that have to be disambiguated and trying to understand the problem. What I'm interested in is the philosophical question of what role in general guns have to play in uh, a liberal in a traditional traditionally liberal society like ours that is one designed on the basis of enlightenment social contract principles and so in other words i I really don't want to be adding a voice to um, the oh if you had just done this this wouldn't have happened because I have no confidence that that's true at all I just simply want to say okay you know given that guns now are clearly an important issue it's worth asking what role should guns play in a society like ours uh, given the type of society we are um, rather than suggest that I'm I'm offering something that's going to solve the problem which I just don't think uh, I don't think is the case how do you feel about it um, well. I, I mean, I think that is kind of the most fundamental issue. And um, yes, I agree we'll, we'll shy away from the empirical questions and leave them for another day. Well, and to social scientists, I mean, to people that actually right. have the data. I mean, we don't. Right. Um, um, and that's, that's a complicated and worthy aspect of this kind of larger issue, which we won't be dealing with. Um, but yes, we should focus on the philosophical side, but I do think that, um, if it's the case that the empirical, um, evidence supports, uh, the idea that restricting access to guns, uh, is, um, ameliorative or, um, well, I guess everything's ameliorative because nothing's ever totally solved in policy. But if it's seriously ameliorative, and if we're right about how to deal with the philosophical issues, you cannot help but realize that that ends up becoming a really strong and I think kind of ineluctable justification for restricting right. access to guns. Right, right. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess on these sorts of questions having to do with sort of public well-being, right, I do envisage the possibility of there being a tension between what people have a right to given our system mm-hmm. and what empirically is going to reduce mass shootings. And um, obviously those things have to be balanced. Um, 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 uh, I won't deny that emotionally sort of, I have to say that, you know, if it turns out that X is what's required to stop these things from happening and, you know, X is incompatible with some right somebody has, and maybe the right needs to be revisited. But I also recognize the danger of thinking that way. I mean, if you changed it from guns to something else, um, it might not be so obvious that that's the way to, that that's the way we should think about it. So I agree. I don't. I, I agree with you. We shouldn't. We shouldn't deny the importance of the philosophical question. Hmm. Um, I just want to make it clear that we're. N- I at least am not intending to participate in the kind of thing that we just said we hate, and that is each side yelling about what it thinks uh, would, would fix the problem, because I don't know it will fix the problem. Okay. So, um, well, so how do you want to do this? Do you want to um, just talk about 
the the liberal social contract, the, the, the social contract and liberalism, and what we think it has to say about guns. Or did you want to start with the uh, the articles? Um, I know you have a, a really uh, uh, a really ripe quote from Grover Norquist. How do you want to get into this? We'll get around to Grover Norquist, but um, looking at uh, your your article, which you wrote, which um, is an imaginary address from then President then President Barack Obama, um, in which, quite uncharacteristically, he gives us a a much needed civics lesson. That's your phrase: uh, a much needed civics lesson. Yeah. Um, that just involves the relation between the social contract and um, and guns. So, the you identify two basic commitments, um, which you you identified, I think, rightly as being particularly salient. Um, shall I shall I read them? Yeah, go ahead. Good. Okay. Um, a collect. So. The idea is, first of all, and maybe you want to take the ball on this, American government and even American civic culture is, um, what should we say, founded on? Maybe that's too strong. Uh, but is always featured as a core element, this kind of social contract um, thinking. Um, yeah, I would I would argue that the United States is one of the products of the social contract thinking of the Enlightenment. I would say France is another. France, however, going through from coming out of Rousseau rather than Locke, and so taking a very different course. Um, of course, Locke is not the only influence on uh, the American founding. You also, of course, have uh, Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. Um, and you also, of course, have a significant influence from the uh, ancient Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that in terms of the sort of the logic of uh, our system of government and the founding documents, especially the Declaration of Independence, um, all really resonate with Lockean ideas. Um, it's not a, it's not a secret. I mean, I'm teaching actually I'm teaching this right now in uh, mm-hmm. in school at the university. And um you know, the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that's in the De- Declaration of Independence, that's everyone's natural right. Um, and Locke is life, liberty, and property. And if you understand the role of property, you'll understand that they're basically the same. I mean, that the statements are basic, that those uh, basic rights are essentially the same. So um, I do think that um, it's not it's not too strong or inaccurate to say that um, the United States is a country uh, – is a, is a fundamentally liberal society based upon social contract uh, uh, thinking from the Lockean tradition. I would argue that, yes. Right. And uh, fortunately, we've already done a dialogue about liberalism, and we talked about... We did two dialogues on liberalism, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Although there we talked a lot about Mill and other people, too. We, we wasn't strictly social contract, but right. yes, we did talk we did about t- it. We yeah. did talk about Locke a lot. Yes, we did. Um, and so if people want to go view that, that would be great. But um, more taking a narrower focus today, um, you identify two basic commitments, which are kind of at the core of social contract theory. So social contract theory 
um, is a way, it's a theory about what makes governments legitimate. And the legitimacy flows from this kind of contract that we all implicitly or explicitly uh, bind ourselves to. Uh, and there are two aspects that, uh, again, you identified. One is that the social contract consists of a collective agreement on everyone's part to surrender their right to enforce the law of nature and transfer it to a third party, the government, granting it the authority to do so. So uh, we don't want to talk too much about the law of nature, but the idea is that prior to forming a social contract, we are all able, we all have the right to judge in our own cases and to uh, protect ourselves and to uh, exercise uh, whatever means are necessary to protect ourselves. But when we form the social contract, we make a collective agreement and we surrender those rights. And, we sur- yeah, we surrender some of them, right? I mean, right. and, and you know, it's this is part of the thing where people are going to may, maybe push back and say, well, we don't surrender those, right? Um, right. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, you have to talk about the natural law to at least for a second because otherwise the whole thing doesn't make sense. I mean, um, the idea sort of is that as a matter of nature, naturally, that is independently of any social, uh, social or political authorities, um, we are all naturally free and equal, mm-hmm. uh, and we're all fundamentally individuals, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this was a break with the pre-modern tradition, where the individual was, def- was the social unit was prior to the individual, and that the individual was defined in terms of it, and in which authority, political authority, was thought to be, uh, exist naturally, um, uh, that the state was thought to have it uh, naturally. Um, and for Locke, it's, for the modern theorists, it's, it's the opposite. It's that, no, the individual is fundamental. Um, the only natural authority rests in the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that, um, as a result... Uh, any public authority that exists uh, has to, in some sense, derive its authority from the natural authority of the individual. And that basically is what happens when we make agreements, right? I mean, um, 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 you know, I might agree to work for you in return for money, and therefore you you, you, you acquire certain authority over me because I've granted it to you, and, and, and it's to our mutual benefit um, for in this particular sphere for you to be the boss and for me to be the employee. Um, and, um, and I, and I also yeah. only have as much authority over you as you give me. Right. And I can, and I can break the, de- I mean, if one, the minute I stop working for you, you have no authority over me anymore. Right. right? Because um, the contract is dissolved. Right. That's right. And so, um, now in the state of nature, um, because the only authority that, that exists is the natural authority of the individual and because everyone is naturally free and equal and therefore has a natural right not to be harmed by others and the natural obligation not to harm other people, um, enforcement of the law of nature, the only, the only um, authority to enforce is that of the individual and he only has the right to enforce in his own case, right? Um, and uh, so I have the right when somebody harms me, I have the na- in the state of nature, I have the natural right to uh, punish him 
and when when uh, and take recompense and whatever depending on what he's done to me, and uh, and vice versa, right? Um, um, and um, Locke thinks that um, this is not obviously not ideal. Um, and the reason it's not ideal is because um, justice is constrained. Uh, it's constrained by principles like the principle of proportionality. It's constrained by all sorts of uh, principles that require, that only are possible to uh, to, to adhere to uh, if one is dispassionate. Mm-hmm. And the, the the one case that you are least likely to be dispassionate in is your own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Locke says it's simply not ideal um, that that the individual be the policeman, the judge, and the executioner in his or her own case, because in his his or her own case, he is the person least likely to be dispassionate, mm-hmm. and therefore least likely to be just in his response to any violation of his natural rights, right? Which um, makes the point that it's not a free for all in the state of nature. No, right? it's not. It's not a Hobbesian state of nature. Right. Um, 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 Locke believes there are natural rights and natural laws, and he thinks that they follow from our natural equality and our natural freedom. Right. So, um, and that's doing... really enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's that's very made very clear that we are naturally free and naturally equal. And what that means is that you can't, you don't have the right to just do anything to anyone, right? Right. Um, even in the state of nature. The problem in the state of nature is that enforcement falls to the individual. And right. the individual is the worst person to enforce the law in his or her own case. Look, in civil society, we require judges to be dispassionate. If a judge has any relationship or investment with the people involved, the litigants in the case, he or she must recuse themselves, right? And that's because we recognize that the, in the human temperament, mm-hmm. partiality renders dispassion impossible and therefore therefore justice will not be done. So you're much more likely to over-punish the person. Mm-hmm. Right? If someone – I'm much – let's put it this way. A policeman is much less likely to shoot a burglar than I am when the burglar's in my house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I feel the passions of the protection of my own life, my daughter's life, my wife's life. The policeman hopefully doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and understands, okay, the guy broke into the house and, you know, stole a toaster. Right. The, the proper penalty for that is not death, right? Mm-hmm. But right. for me as an individual, I'm stricken by fear and loathing and all these sorts of things, and I am much less likely Right. In the heat of those emotions to to react that way, so that's why Locke says it's it's that one of the fundamental rationales for making the social contract, and we'll have to talk about what that consists of because that gets to the guns issue. Mm-hmm. Major one of the major rationales for making the social contract is that it is a bad idea to have people enforce the law themselves in their own cases. Right. I'm sorry, I went on a long time. You no, comment good. to whatever that's, degree you want. It's it's all that's all helpful. So then you've laid out the problems with the law of nature or with the state of nature very well. And the proposed solution is to transfer uh, these, uh, these rights of dealing with injustice and dealing with um, crime to a third party, which becomes the government. Right. And, And it's the government in view of the fact that it, these rights are transferred to it. That's right. just what it means to be the government. Right. I mean, look, I, I, as I 
to remind my, I try to tell my students over and over because I think people just, they don't understand this. And I think it affects the way we interact with the public authorities. Um, the policeman does not have authority over you because he has a weapon. Right. The policeman has authority over you because you granted him the right to be the one to do this job, to play this role, right? To, to be the person who goes after, chases after burglars and arsonists and, 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 and shoplifters and all this sort of stuff, right? Um, and, um, he has no authority otherwise, other than his own natural authority that everyone has over him or herself, right? Um, and we do that. In which case I, he's not a police officer. Yeah, I'm not, I'm sorry. In which case, he's not a police officer. Exactly, and so, and he, 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 you know, the the question is, where does political authority come from? And the answer is, it comes from every individual agreeing to transfer part of their natural authority to this third to these third parties, right, for the purpose of executing justice in a more just fashion than we would as individuals, right? Right, um, and we all make this agreement. Because we don't trust each other, right? Right, um, and that's what always sort of fascinates me about the gun debate is that you know the whole premise of the social contract is that I don't trust you to control yourself enough to live with you in a kind of a wild west scenario, and so we all kind of agree. Okay, we're going to see those people over there. We're going to give them special hats, and they're going to roam around, and they're going to be the ones that now. If that's my basic rationale for forming the government and forming the state, why the hell would I then want to want you walking around Walmart with a pistol? Right. But right. we'll get. Let's, I, you know, right, but that's that's where that. pointing is the point. Is right. But that that gets to our second basic commitment. Yeah. Which, yeah. which when you were talking about, um, talking about uh, your your kids, your students, talking to police officers. Uh, the second part is we make a collective agreement that each of us will voluntarily submit to the authority of the third party, which is to say, if a cop comes up to you and says and asks you a question, you are supposed to say, yes, officer, no right. officer. And you're supposed to, I mean, you can resist them in certain ways. You could say, am I being detained? Am I under arrest? Um, but you're supposed to, if so long as they're exercising their authority correctly, you it's part of the agreement that we yeah. go along with that, and we both, the police and the the civilian, um, follow proper procedures and proper rules, and do what is necessary to make that exercise of power happen smoothly. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, look. It depends upon for it to work for the social contract approach. To this to work there has to be overwhelming voluntary compliance because you just simply are never going to have sufficient, even though the state and the social contract theory has a monopoly on force, um, uh, as the argument obviously implies, right? Um, it's never going to have sufficient force to overwhelm, you know, the entire citizenry. And so it really does depend on us. And, and for the most part, we really do overwhelmingly voluntarily uh, uh, submit to the authority. I, I will just say one thing about this. I mean, which sort of does disturb me a little bit. Um, and this is why I keep emphasizing this to students is I do think that this gets kind of blurred in people's minds and they start to think that the, the policeman's authority does come from the fact that he's got a weapon and that he can beat the shit out of you and throw you in a car and lock you up. And I even see that a little bit in the, in the, in the directions in which deferenti deferentiality go. In other words, agree that 
that the agreement, the tacit agreement the social contract imagines does require us to be respectful of and uh, mm-hmm. deferential to, in a certain way, the police. But the way you look at the way these interactions go, it seems to me that we're deferential to a point that seems to me to indicate confusion over where the actual authority lies. I think it's the policeman that should be calling you, sir, not you calling him, sir, because the policeman doesn't actually have any authority. He only has authority insofar as you've granted it to him. And um, I, 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 I feel like we're getting into a relationship with law enforcement that's more and more blurring the lines between law enforcement and military. Um, mm-hmm. um, and and, and, uh, and in the case of military, there is no authority. It is pure force, right? It is simply right. the application of force, right? Um, uh, military is not law enforcement, and we have a long tradition in this country that we, sh- we should not use the military domestically in a law enforcement capacity. And I just feel like the, all that's getting blurred and that we're forgetting that the authority the police have is really only a matter of uh, agreements, right? I mean, it's not anything special about them, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and when, when a, a, a government well, – let me be careful. When a state starts to operate that way, it's not clear that it's a government anymore in quite the same way. You know, we, that's when – or if you look at someplace like Mexico or Afghanistan or something where they, by and large, don't have the compliance and the um, – the tacit agreement of the citizens and they do just operate by pure force. We tend to call those places failed States. Yeah. And it's, it's a completely different kind of social arrangement. Yeah. And, and Locke emphasizes, you know, in the description of the, the, the social contract, um, which you just gave me the, sort of these, the two key bullet points to, you know, I would add a third and that is that the people who operate, who occupy the positions of authority in the state themselves have to be subject to the law, right? Uh, in other words, the, the actual individuals are simply role fillers, right? Um, and are no less subject to the law themselves. That's why, as I said to students, that's why it is so dangerous in a society like ours in particular when public authorities abuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, this and from Nixon on, right? Um, I'm not saying they never did before, but I mean, there's a certain consciousness in the nation from Nixon on of this kind of violation of the the public char- of the public uh, du- the duty of the public official to pay the law. Um, it's so dangerous precisely because it undermines the fundamental rationale for the social contract, right? And um, and in Locke's view, uh, actually returns you to the state of nature. Uh, and I would actually argue that right now, if you were to speak strictly speaking philosophically, that we are only partly an intact social contract. I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, so this is, this is Juvenal's famous problem of who watches the watchman. The police are by definition above the law in, in one sense because they can carry. They have the monopoly on force. <laughs> they have the monopoly on force. They're, well, they're, they don't follow all the traffic laws. They don't follow all the the carry laws. They don't follow all the the um, laws on uh, being able to touch people or wrestle them to the ground and assault. Um, and that's what makes them police officers: is they're given these special privileges that they're able to execute things. But they're only police officers, real police officers, when they use that. Uh, those special privileges towards the certain purposes 
uh, which lead us to create police departments in the first place. They're yeah. only supposed to, you know, physically tackle the people who are breaking the law. They're only supposed to. Uh, and only under certain circumstances, right? I mean, right. In other words, that's the last thing you're supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the use of, I mean, look, I mean, the, the English police up until not very long ago did not even carry firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and, and, you know, I think that, look, I think that demonstrably it can work because it has, right? Mm-hmm. To the extent to which it's starting to not work or unravel, um, I think we need to ask the question why, but it's not because it couldn't work, right? It has. Um, I, I, I can remember going to London, a major city, mm-hmm. and the policemen were not carrying not carrying firearms. Um, and uh, that, to me, that, that sort of is the ultimate, right? That's how it should be working, right? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. shouldn't need them, and you shouldn't, and they, they shouldn't need them because you, sh- you shouldn't, Shouldn't be fighting them, right? <laughs> right. Um, um, and I, I, I'm under the impression that, as an empirical matter, it's largely the drug war that that changed this, right? That 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 the 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 the, the nature of the violent criminality begin to involve uh, firearms to a point to which police had no choice, and they and that the drug the drug gangs, the agents of these organizations had such a spectacular disregard for um, for uh, the social contract, so to speak, that the police had to militarize. Yeah. That's also how Americans destroyed Mexico. But yeah. that's, that's another yeah. story for yeah. yeah, no, 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 but that's it's important. Yeah, yeah. But that gets us right into guns, right? So your, your basic point, which you made just a few minutes ago, was if I don't trust you well enough, to judge in your own case. Um, and you even put it that you don't trust yourself to judge in your own should. case. We shouldn't. Right. So if we, if we don't trust each other, or even trust ourselves enough um, to such an extent that we transfer authority to some third party, which we then call the government, why would we leave guns lying around? since that guns provide sufficient means to challenge the government. And I I think that's the very basic point. If we transfer authority to a third party, but then leave lying everywhere sufficient means to challenge for an individual citizen to challenge that authority, in what sense have we really made the transfer to a third party? Yeah, I I think that people... Private citizens uh, walking around with pistols, and I, and, I, and I would really distinguish carrying out in public mm-hmm. from keeping, a, let's say, a shotgun in your house. I mean, although we can even talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm not a purist. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to just talk about people. I'm just talk, happy to talk about the guy in Starbucks or the pistol. Right. Um, or um, for me, because I live in Ohio, I saw a guy with a Hillary for prison T-shirt and a don't tread on me belt carrying two pistols in the uh, the grocery store. Two pistols. Two pistols. Uh, it's that second one. You got to have that one um, <laughs> on both sides like a cowboy. I think it was one on one side and one in the back. Jesus. In Ohio. In Ohio, in Cincinnati, in the real Wait, Don't city. tread on me. Isn't that New Hampshire? Yeah, well, he didn't <laughs> mind. <laughs> you should have told him. Um, 
I think you should go to New Hampshire as soon as possible. So you should have said to him. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, but I'm, I'm happy just talking about sort of carrying a button. It seems to me that people walking around, private citizens walking around with pistols. Right. Is almost like a performance art version of saying, I don't accept the social, I'm not willing to make the social contract. Yes. It's saying wherever I go, whatever happens to me, I'm going to judge in my own case. I'm not right. going to What do you have it for? Right. right. <laughs> Which is very different, as you pointed out, from have it in your home. That's only saying if somebody breaks into my home in the middle of the night where they're not supposed to be in the first place. Yeah then I'll be ready to judge in my own case, which it's at least is more. Right. I still think, though, that within the home, you still have the base argument, which is the proportionality argument. Mm-hmm. That is that, look, if a guy breaks into your house to steal your coffee maker, the mm-hmm. appropriate punishment is not a death sentence. Right. And the, pro- the problem is that you as an individual who homeowner where your kids are in there and stuff – you're not going to make those distinctions, right? You're not going to, you're going to just kill the guy. And, um, um, according to Locke, you've then, you've in a sense broke, not only have you broken the social contract, I mean, you've in a sense returned yourself to the state of nature. You've now harmed, you've now wronged, you've violated his natural rights now. Mm -hmm. Um, because the principle of proportionality operates in the state of nature, right? In the so, state of nature, if you steal a chicken from me, I can't go kill your whole family. Then I've harmed you. I haven't administered justice. I've harmed you. And now you have the right to seek justice against me. And so I'm even worried about the guns in the home. But like I said, I'm not a purist, and I'm willing to sort of accept that even though the argument applies, there are certain practicalities that have to be sort of, you know, taken into account. Um, but um, But certainly carrying around in the street, Mm-hmm. strikes me as just fundamentally inconsistent with the basic logic of the social contract in the most obvious way that I'm really surprised that this is not more often a topic of conversation. Um, you just don't hear this at all. I mean, when I published that essay, I don't think that was a part of any public conversation about these yes. shootings and about so, what people, you know. So anyway, yeah. So it's debatable even in the home case. I think so. But it's really uh, I'll quote you directly here because this is a good phrase, but you said to allow private citizens to carry weapons undermines the very logic on which our civil society rests. And uh, just to briefly reiterate what that means, you're what you're doing fundamentally is failing to transfer that authority to enact the laws to the government to the third party that um, we all trust to, to um, administer justice. Right. And failing to recognize that the reason why we do that is because we don't trust each other and we don't trust ourselves. And so the person walking around with a pistol either does trust himself and does trust others, which Locke would argue he has no good reasonable reason to, or he doesn't care. Right. In other words, he doesn't care about justice, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, in that case, then, it strikes me, he has put himself in the state of nature. Um, and, uh, you know, you have enough people do that, then there's a question whether you really have a social contract at all. Right. Um, um, so, um, so yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously a lot of objections, and I think in, in, in our correspondence, you, 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 
identified a number of objections. I don't know if you want to go to them now or whether there's some further things you want to develop along these lines. Yeah, no, I do want to. So we just made the, the fundamental case that um, the, the case for restricting firearms kind of flows directly from social contractarian thinking. And so if we accept that that's the form of government we have, then we have a pretty strong case for restricting those things. Um, there, are, But, of course, there are some objections to that kind of thinking lying around, and um, we want to talk about why we don't think they're any good. Well, let me ask you this. Let me just ask you mm-hmm. about the questions, about the objections as a whole. Mm-hmm. Do you see them mostly as objections that are basically saying, no, 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 the social contract really is consistent with people walking around Walmart and Starbucks with weapons, or that, well, that social contract logic's kind of fucked up. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, it's a bad idea. We shouldn't think of society. I mean, look, not all the liberals were social contract theorists. I mean, Hume famously was not a social contract theorist. Right. Um, 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 and I don't think, I don't think, Burke probably probably could be seen as a contract theorist, although that gets a little more debatable. But Hume explicitly isn't one. Right. And so, do you see most of the objections that people typically voice? And again, this argument really doesn't get made this way very much. But to the extent to which people make the case that they should be allowed to walk around Starbucks and Walmart with a pistol, um, do you think that mostly the case they're making is that it's consistent with social contractarian thinking? or that it's not but so much the worst for social contractarian thinking? If I had to guess, I would say the conservative intellectuals are generally making the case that it's um, consistent with uh, social contract theory, especially it gets into right to revolution, which gets into Locke. That's because most of the conservatives in America are actually liberals. They're not They're really mostly, right. In other words, a real conservative, right? A real conservative would be an anti-social would be anti-social contract because the, just simply because of the, the radical individualism of it, right? Right. Um, that's part of my reason, by the way. This is just you know tangent. I don't actually think there is any real traditional. I don't think there's actually any real conservative movement in the United States. I just think there's varieties of liberalism, and then you have progressives, um, of course. Um, I actually don't think that there's anything akin to. An, an old school British Tory in the United States, um, because we are all social contractarians at a certain level. Um, and, um, I would, in other words, I agree with you, but I do think that the, the, the conservative intellectuals, almost all of them are going to argue that it's consistent with social contract thinking. And that's because they are all actually liberals. They're not really conservatives. And so they don't reject, they don't reject the basic principles of liberalism, um, of political liberalism. It seems to me. You think there is actually a real well anti individualist conservative tradition in the United States? I would say you said most conservatives are liberals. Yes. I would Small say, L liberals. I would say most conservatives are liberals some of the time. Um I love uh, <laughs> That's fair enough. I mean <laughs> Brink Brink Lindsay, who heads the Niskanen Center, was on blogging. Yeah, he's the libertarian, as they call right. him. Right? Um, I always liked him. 
Yeah, I like him too. I wish he'd saw the Terry and off the end and just. I wish he'd come back on Blogging Heads. He used to be on Blogging Heads quite a lot. Um, Well, he he had a good line, which he said that the conservative movement was always this combination of kind of more conservative, traditional conservative tendencies and sort of liberal, um, libertarian tendencies. Um, And he called it a chimera, which I thought was a wonderful line. Yeah. Um, Because a chimera, for people who don't know mythology, is part lion, part goat. It's a hybrid animal. Part dragon, I think. But it's like three different animals um, put together. And I think what was really... uh, revealing about that comment is if if you tried to really put an animal together that way, it probably couldn't breathe. Like the, the parts wouldn't go it's together. It's not a viable animal. Right. Exactly. And, so you're saying, and, and so the, what, 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 these conservatives are not really viable political positions um, um, uh, uh, in a sense. I mean, look, I, I, I notice I didn't say that there's nobody on the right. Who's not a liberal. Um, I do think there are reactionaries. Um, um, but if by a conservative, you mean something like, what T.S. Eliot describes in, in, in his political writings, which I think is about the best 20th century expression of true conservatism, I just don't think you have that tradition in the United States, and that's because of its individualism. Um, um, uh, uh, the individualism is just simply at odds with uh, the, the most fundamental conservative presence, not just to mention, not, not just the individualism, but also the lack of belief in, uh, in fundamental natural hierarchies. Um, um, uh, aristocracy. And so I, I don't think that those are separable from conservatism. Um, um, and uh, I actually, I'm going to link to this also. I actually published a pretty substantial piece also on conservatism right. and, um, why I don't think there is any, any real conservative. I mean, you'd have to go back to someone like Fisher Ames, find somebody in the American tradition that I might even be willing to sort of admit is, is, somewhat of a conservative in the traditional meaning of the word. Uh, but even Fisher Ames, I think, is fundamentally a liberal in terms of his um, fundamental notion of the, the true, where, where authority fundamentally rests, right, in individuals, not in institutions. Well, I think in um, mainstream conservatives, like definitely in a Ted Cruz, um, definitely in a Bill O'Reilly, in addition to the individualism and the sort of classical liberal elements is this incongruous kind of communitarian element um, where there are very concerned, you know, Bill O'Reilly partly got famous for uh, picking these pop culture battles. You know, they don't like, Oh yeah, that's uh, right. The war on Christmas or, um, he obviously never lived in Springfield, Missouri (laughs) (laughs) because you can't fucking escape Christmas here from about from about Halloween all the way up through February, right? <laughs> yes, it's not I Christmas. That was preposterous, but yeah. It's not Christmas until Santa goes by in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Okay? Right. Then it's Christmas. <laughs> all right. But no, but no, not just that. Not just the war on Christmas, but also the, the vulgarity in music, mm. um, violence on television, um, violence in movies, video games have been a flashpoint for many, many years. All these, they do want this kind of monoculture. 
yeah. for at least um, a, a sort of constrained, restricted culture. Um, I, I I said this in a previous dialogue, uh, but uh, uh, Mike Huckabee's vision of guns, grits, God, and um, uh, what was the fourth G? Guns, grits, God. Well, anyway, you see what I mean. They yeah. want that kind of shared cultural assumptions, which is more communitarian and not at all liberal. Yeah, but don't you think that they that that in a sense manifests itself in a way that's fundamentally reactionary and not conservative? Um, because it kind of it it evo- it fictionalizes the past, right? I mean. I mean, Elliot and Elliot is very explicit that conservatism um, does not preclude change. Right. It simply means that change should be organic rather than theoretical, uh, the result of theoretical cons- theoretical considerations. Um, and that sort of goes all the way back to Burke. And I mean, Burke, right. I also think was was more uh, in some ways a liberal uh, rather than a conservative. Um, and he's sort of a complicated case, but in this sense, I think he's definitely conservative. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's why, you know, people in blogging have been asking me to do something on conservatism with a real conservative. And that's why all the names I keep thinking of are all people from overseas. Cause I can't think of any actual American conservatives. All I can think of are liberals that have this kind of schizoid, uh, attitude that you describe or and react- reactionaries like Patrick Buchanan and stuff. And, you know, you're not going to really learn anything about conservatism from those people, it seems to me. But, but um, I was yes. going to try and get Roger Scruton, but I'm not sure that he would be willing to do it. So um. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. But, um, no. Yeah. Uh, well, you use the word schizoid, which I take to be a kind of you're thinking in a way similar to my chimerical. Yeah. Which is, it's these incongruous elements put together. Yeah. Um, but uh, to I think the same thing, by the way, on the left, before people get upset, I think the same thing is true on the left. I think progressivism has really kind of polluted liberalism um, in a way. Um, I mean, we're probably – we shouldn't get off on this, but I just – I want to be fair-minded about this and not – this isn't like some hatchet job on the right. Uh, if anybody who's familiar with my public writings knows, I, I, I'm much more often critical of progressives than I am of conservatives right now, and that's because I view it as cleaning, keeping my own house clean. Um, um, it's not because I, I hate people on the left more than people on the right. It's because I am on, on the left, so to speak. And, um, it's important to me that to not allow a tradition that I think is noble and has given us the best sort of systems that we have to be polluted by a philosophy that, that, you know, if you look at its history, it goes back to prohibition and eugenics and all sorts of things that, if people actually knew what, what progressive means, <laughs> might not be so eager to call themselves, right? Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. I, I got us off. No, that's all right. To, to answer the question you asked me, is, is are those more communitarian elements of conservatism more reactionary than conservative? Uh, basically, no. More no than yes. Um, I think any kind of traditionalist will – any kind of traditional handing down of the past will involve a degree of mythologizing the past. And I don't even think that mythologizing the past is, past is um, always unhealthy. I would probably uh, agree with that, yeah. Gordon Wood has done a lot of thinking about this in recent years and pushing yeah. back on people like Jill Lepore and Pauline Mayer. Yeah, I think I agree with that, yeah. And um, I think 
There are certainly reactionary, strong reactionary elements in the right, especially some parts of the right, but some part of it is still this, or a strong part. Uh, is this sort of uneasy, uneasy but honest combination of liberalism and communitarianism? In its best form, sure. Um, it's like someone like McIntyre or yeah, from the right and someone like Sandel from the left, sort of? Yes, I was I was just thinking of Sandel as well. He was also trying to make a kind of combination of these things. But just like a Matt Lewis, uh, unless not... You think Matt Lewis is a, a combined liberal communitarian and that it's the sure. communitarianism that makes him look conservative? Yes. That's interesting. And, and I wish you talk. I wish you could talk to him about that. I think it'd be really interesting. I'm not sure he would. He'd do it. I mean, but just because we're not very important. <laughs> but, um, but we keep um, going along. His he wants his star to rise in a way that we're not not consistent with talking to us. But you think that he's one of these people? Um, yeah, but a I, weird I, mixture of liberal and conservative views out of him. Yeah, and I think that's not atypical for you. Just your average center-right, either citizen or um, or intellectual, your average sort of talking head going on TV who's a center-right sort of person. Yeah, yeah. All right, so back to the guns. Um, th- this right. whole thing was a tangent that went off of me asking you whether, as a whole, you see the objections uh, to the kind of argument we've made. The so- Let's call it the social contractarian argument against private gun carrying. Let's call it that. Okay. Okay. Um, I asked you whether as a whole, you view the objections to that as primarily coming, saying coming from an orientation that says, no, no, no public private people carrying guns is consistent with the social contract. You're just wrong about that. Or is it that they reject the social contract and you think it's mostly the former? Uh, Actually, what I was going to say is I think the intellectuals and the upper crust people are more, are more making it consistent with social or trying to make it consistent with social contract. And I think my friend in the supermarket carrying the pistols is probably the second one. He probably just wants to live in the state of nature. Uh, He wants to live in a Mad Max movie or at least thinks he does. Do you get Um, the impression? I get the impression that these people are typically the people who actually do not live in high crime areas and actually are not. And because I just, you know, I used to work in the South Bronx in the early nineties. Right. And not only did it never occur to me that I'd want to be walking around carrying a pistol so that I could get into a gunfight with a bunch of crack dealers. Mm -hmm. Um, I never ever heard anybody who lived in those environments saying they wanted to walk around with a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, it always seems to me that the people who, who, who think they want to live in the state of nature, the people who actually are, have the least contact with anything remotely like the state of nature, right? Um, um, let's put it this way. Springfield, Missouri it ain't the fucking state of nature, right? By any measure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, and not even like the South Bronx or anywhere even close. And um, I don't know. There just seems to me a lot of um, – I know this is going to get me a lot of grief, but I don't know. This seems to me to be almost expressions of adolescent machismo. Oh, sure. 
I don't um, even know that I even buy their arguments about safety. I mean, I really think that they just they just never they just never outgrew their sixteen year old Soldier of Fortune magazine uh, fucking identity, right? Yeah. Um, well, I was told as a younger person, this would have been about ten years ago, um, by a conservative economist that the best predictor of whether you were a liberal or conservative was the average distance between people where you lived. Hmm. Now that's uh, really interesting. Um, so that may be out of date because it was 10 years ago, but probably not. Um, but yeah, in more rural areas where there are fewer people, um, people tend to be more tolerant of guns because you don't get quite the same problems. There's still a lot of problems with guns out there in rural America. Rural America is not um, a uh, Mark Twain novel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of guns. There's a lot of meth. Yeah. Actually, Um, increasingly the real, the really poor rural areas are starting to sort of really resemble the poor urban areas in terms of the social uh, problems that they have. Right. economic problems that they have, the social disintegration. Um, but interestingly, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. Um, 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 so anyway, what you want to go through some of the, what you take to be the, the better objections to the social contractarian argument against uh, private people walking around uh, in public with guns and, and, or at some point get the Grover Norquist uh, stuff into it. Yeah, well, let's go through them quickly. One we have to deal with because it's just ubiquitous, and it's the one you dealt with in your piece, which is just um, making the perfect the enemy of the good, or they'll get guns anyway. So what, what's the what's the problem, or why bother passing a law against guns? The bad guys will get guns anyway. So you you want to knock that down? Well, but you know, is, is that is it even just that? I mean, because in that sense, that's not really reply. I mean, look, yes, of course, the bad guys are going to get guns anyway. But how does that challenge the idea that the proper people to deal with the bad guys are the police and not you? I thought that the argument was the, the stronger argument was, well, what if what, what what if the police don't come in time? Right. What if there's no police around, or I have no way to contact one, or whatever? I thought that that was the more no, because the first argument doesn't seem to be really to be an argument. It's a terrible argument, but it is. I you asked me, do people really make that argument? Absolutely. I think it's the most commonly made one. I guess my answer to that is I don't see how it's an argument against the idea that the proper people to deal with those guys who get the guns anyway are the police and the courts. Right. And not, that has played not you, out. Not you, right? right? And that has played out in real time. That. Um, in some of these shootings, like one of the ones in Dallas a few years ago, one of the major problems for the police was good Samaritans going out with guns, trying to help and getting in the way because the police don't know if they're shooters if or what's going Wasn't on. Wasn't Zimmerman a, a neighborhood watch guy? Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Neighborhood and, Watch makes scares the crap out of me. I mean, I mean, we have a sign in my neighborhood that says Neighborhood Watch, and the only reason it doesn't make me nauseous is because I my neighborhood is so small. I know everybody in, it, and I know that none of them <laughs> is going to run out and shoot shoot somebody. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, but but I, I just you know, yeah, I just don't trust people. 
Um, uh, you know, at least a policeman, I have some sense, okay, you know, he's been through the academy, he's been through training, he knows how to use the thing, it's been drilled into his head a thousand times when not to use it and what the rights of the person are and all that. I mean, some jerk down the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't trust him to, to fucking sweep my steps, let alone enforce the law in my neighborhood. And um, um, so, I, yeah, I just, I, I don't see how that's an argument. Why is that? Why is the fact that somebody might get a gun who's bad mean that you should be the one that goes and arrests them? You just say sweep your steps. Yeah, this sepia tone nineteen twenty stoop that you have. I have nice brick steps in the front of my house, and right now because it's autumn, there's, it's covered with leaves. Right? Okay. Uh, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. No. That. Okay. To get. Back. I don't see why it's an argument, though. So here's the thing, because um, to use political science language, there's kind of a type one, type two error thing going on here. Um, whenever, whenever there's a shooting, like like you you quoted Trump using this kind of logic, if only the guy at the, the Pittsburgh synagogue had had a gun, um, he could have stopped this shooting, right? And people always use that language. Good guy with a gun, bad guy with a gun, that sort of thing, yeah. Right. As though you could stop time in the middle of a shooting with full information of everything that's going on, take a gun, put it in the hands of someone who knows how to use it, and then sort of point them at the threat and, you know, fix it that way. But that's not how public policy works. You can't stop time and distribute guns exactly to all the good people. What you basically have is like a big, um, like a big uh, storm drain or something, which is just a big pipe, right? That's just spouting out guns, <laughs> and, and you can kind of. You and every can, jerk and his brother can go pick up and right. And you can how, how competent they are with them or intelligent they are or moral they are is, is not even considered, right? Yeah, um, and you can try to close the valve a little more or you can try to open the valve a little more, but they're going to get out and they're going to move around and you're not going to be able to put them in exactly the hands of the people you want to. But even if you could, right? I don't see how the fact that bad guys are going to get guns anyway is a reason for thinking that you should be the one to go after them and not the police. That's what I don't understand. Well, part of this is everybody thinks they're a Rambo. And they're, nobody believes that they could, that there's just a certain amount of risk that you can't take out of life. Yeah. Everybody thinks if I'm super careful, if I keep my guns in a safe, if I'm, you know, always, you know, have the, uh, the barrel down or whatever, if I take those precautions, then there's no risk. But that's not how life works. Right. Then my kid's not going to shoot his friend by mistake. I'm not going to shoot somebody by mistake. I'm not going to shoot somebody when I really shouldn't because I've, I'm, 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 I'm aflame with passion um, um, and all that. Um, 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 yeah. Um, all right. So that's, that's one argument. And what you want to, is the safety, is the safety one next? Yeah, well, I, if you'd like, I can just 
do three really quickly because sure. I think they really have a lot in common. And I think these are the three that you really hear from pretty much cons- all conservative intellectuals. And I'm not talking about um, philosophers and um, jurists and people only you and I and six other people listen to, but the people who are on TV and write for newspapers and who are driving most of the kind of policy debate, I think these are really the arguments you hear, um, which is citizens will face uh, some kind of threat beyond the reach of law enforcement. Um, you know, I can call the cops, but the guy is in my house now. Right. Gun By at the me. time the police come, then I've already been robbed or beaten up or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, citizens individual citizens will place will face rogue or corrupt um, police officers. A cop will, which we've actually conceded in our earlier discussion is that we are both concerned about the extent to which we think police Mm -hmm. are not staying within the role that they've been assigned within the social contract. So yes, that's the, that's another one. Yeah. And the, the third one, which is really the second one out multiplied to the level of the entire society which is um, we may, as a, the citizenry in general, may face a corrupt or um, uh, out-of-control uh, police department, which, again, is a not, uh, not a totally abstract fear, given right. that you have um, the commander of detectives in Chicago facing serious crimes for, you know, uh, Torturing people over a career, you know, that shows yeah. that. A- or Waco, or I mean, you know, any number of examples, um, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I said early on that um, why it is so incredibly dangerous in a society like ours and which, why we must be absolutely vigilant and unforgiving about that kind of state overreach because it breaks the basic faith and confidence in the con- social contract, right? I mean, it, and it does it more than anything else. And so in other words, every time a Waco happens, every time law enforcement acts this way, it fuels the arguments for people to walk around with pistols. I mean, basically saying, okay, well, you know, if the government's going to act like that, then, you know, they're not, I don't, I don't even know that I trust them to protect me. Right. right. It, it reduces their legitimacy and it reduces Absolutely. the ability to which, um, the the citizenry and the the government can cooperate in this way, which we said was essential to the government being an actual legitimate government. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So none of these fears are without merit, but the, the common logic they all have is, you know, somebody will face, um, somebody will face crime and the cops are too far away. The only way to deal with that is with a gun. Therefore, citizens must be allowed to have guns. Citizens will face uh, rogue or corrupt police officer. The only way to deal with that is with the gun. Therefore, citizens must be able to have guns. Or the citizenry will um, face a completely root-to-branch rogue or corrupt police force, and the citizenry must be able to face that threat. Um, Therefore, the citizenry must be armed with guns. So it's basically the same brief argument 
in sort of three slightly different situations. It seems to me that there's a the flaw between them all is common, and that is precisely what you just said, making the perfect the enemy of the good um, um, to a certain degree, right? I mean, right. look, let's just take the first one, and that's the people are going to find themselves in circumstances or – you know, you say, well, the only, you know, the police aren't going to make it there in time. And so the only choice is uh, for me to defend myself with a gun. And to which my answer is, well, well, that's really not the only choice. Right. So let me just. What speak, is the other choice? Let me speak entirely personally. Right. I've been mugged twice at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. Late at night, out in the streets. Um, Can we say um, you used to live in New York? Yes. Okay. Um, and. You know what I did? I gave the muggers my wallet. Yes. Now, if you said to me, well, wouldn't it have been better if you'd had a gun and had a shootout with the muggers? My answer would be categorically not. Mm-hmm. Not just that, but that anybody who says that, that they would, is either incredibly stupid or lying or, or engaging in a macho display. Um, um, and, um, and so, no, I don't accept the idea that, you know, when the police don't arrive, my only choice is, uh, to get into a gunfight with my assailant. Uh, I could submit to the assailant. I could give the assailant what he wants. Mm -hmm. Um, more likely than not, the assailant who wants my wallet does not want a murder rap. Right. Um, but regardless, um, it's just false to say that those are the only choices. Um, and, um, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think that giving the wallet not only is the better, uh, uh, better choice, but I also think that, um, it's a choice that makes sense within the context that we're talking about. And that is social contract was never mm-hmm. a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Of 100% safety, the social contract, Locke's reasoning is very, very practical. He simply says it's better. Right. It's safer. Right. Not safest, it's safer. And if you ask me, would I rather be in the state of nature where everybody has guns or would I rather be in a civil society under a political authority where only the police do, granting that sometimes I'm going to get mugged, the answer is going to be the latter. And that really is the choice Locke is offering us. He's not offering us the choice of uh, Hobbesian state of war against war against all or Hobbesian paradise of absolute control and law. He's offering us what strikes me as the much more realistic choice, and that is, you know, a not-so-miserable state of nature, but still that's bad enough, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a, a social contract and a civil society that – uh, isn't perfect, but is much better, right? That seems to me that that's clearly what we have. Um, a, a, a couple points. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I went on too long. So you you get you gave him your wallet, right? So it's and important, to, and the, it's important to note that that the story does not end there either, because in the, the civil society, after a crime has taken place. You can go to the police. You which can file what you did, and you can file a report. And a, non, a non-trivial amount of the time, um, you can get your property returned to you. Certainly not all the time. My friend's, car, my friend's stolen car got returned to him. Mm-hmm. Apparently there was a group stealing cars. 
and the police were on to them. And, and when we reported our car stolen, there was just more evidence and they, he got his car back. So yes, you're right. And that's also a benefit of civil society that you couldn't get if you didn't trust the police. Um, but again, it's a type one, type two error problem. Like maybe you could have prevented um, being mugged if you had a gun. Although I agree with the points you made about uh, you're not John Wayne, I'm not either. I wouldn't particularly want to get into a gunfight with the street criminal. Um, but maybe I could prevent um, a mugging if I had a weapon on me. But there's uh, – so that's preventing type 1 error. Yeah, I'm I, not, I, by the way, I don't want to say – I'm not denying yeah. that people having guns would – it will never result in crimes being thwarted or, avert or avoided or whatever. I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, and again, that would be, that's an empirical question. I just, you know, I don't know the answer to what the likelihoods are and all of that. I don't think it's really relevant. Well, I think it, it, it decreases the type one error, which is I get taken advantage of by a criminal, but then it increases this type two error, which now there are all these guns around, right? So if we're permissive of guns in society, I might be able to stop the bugging, but now um, I'm more likely to get into an accident because of the gun I have and because we've decided to um, uh, relax laws against guns, I'm more likely to run into some other gun which was led into society in order to protect me. Um, well, it creates and- a kind of a general, I think a very general um, and dangerous social unease. I mean, the fact of the matter is... Um, I'm I'm really very careful about how I interact with people in public, for example, while driving um, or in certain situations which can get tense, like people waiting on long lines and all sorts of things, because in this area, we have we have ubiquitous concealed carry. And, um, you know, when I walk into a Walmart and I see a guy standing there with a pistol, I turn around and walk out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, yes, you know, maybe in some theoretical sense, he's he might be preventing himself from getting mugged, but he's also now created a scenario where I refuse to share a public space with him. Mm-hmm. And um, um, uh, because I don't know who he is, the fact that he's got a gun makes me think already that he's probably a conspiratorial nut because he's probably one of these people that bought into the idea that we're swimming in crime, even though crime rates are the lowest uh, are the lowest they've been since the 1960s. Um and in that way, I think that the, the, the gun carry types make exactly the same mistake that the rape culture people make on the left. And that is they substitute their own subjective private impressions for actual crime data. Right. Um, and just like we're not in a rape culture, if you actually look at crime statistics, all violent crime, including rape, is at a low point since the 1960s. Uh, we're also not in a crime-ridden society in which in which uh, uh, people in Springfield, Missouri, need to walk around with uh, with guns. That's not to deny that there aren't very high crime areas in the United States. Right. Um, but as overall, um, uh, of all the times when somebody would try to make a safety argument for needing a gun, now is the worst time to make it because it's we're the safest we've been in, in 50, almost fifty years. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, um, so uh, yeah, I just don't. Uh, 
Although I'll say that when I saw a guy with two pistols and Hillary for prison t-shirt, I did finish my shopping. You stayed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I was wanted- with my daughter in a Starbucks and a guy walked in in scrubs with oh, a gun, really? like just not even a holster shoved in his waistband. And I, I just, she and I just turned around and walked right out. I mean, um, point is, I don't know you, man. Right. If I see a policeman with a gun, at least I have a reason to think that he's not some whack job. But I just see some dude walking around, you know, in, in the camos and shit, and, and he just got out of some gigantic truck. He's got, I don't, you know, my, my instincts are, are not going to be to stick around, right? I, I don't know who the, who the hell this guy, and that really is the whole point of the social contract, right? It's a, it's a, you know, Locke really makes two arguments. One, and they're both based on trust. One is the law enforcement argument. We don't trust each other good, for good reasons, sufficiently to enforce the laws in our own case. And the other is economic. Mm-hmm. We don't trust in each other enough to make the kind of large-scale investments that we could produce an advanced society out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in other words, in order to have an advanced economy, you need, you need courts. Right. Right. The only reason somebody's going to give you a Mercedes uh, for nothing but a promise uh, a signature is because they know that if you don't pay them, they can go to court and the court will force you to. Right. Um, and so I just don't understand why people don't seem to see that the entire logic of our society is based on the idea that we don't trust each other. Well, let's talk about the logic of these objections then. So a really central idea here is there's risks in sort of the state of nature and the free-for-all. And there's risks in civil society. There's, so there's always risks. But we're just saying the risks in the civil society um, are less. And That's the only argument for it is that they're less. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the risks in going about trying to prevent crime in a social way and in a contractarian way are less than the risks of distributing guns to the citizens. So... Um, this is where I, I do see there's a kind of common logic to all these objections, which is um, the society at large, the society around the individual, features exclusively as a source of threats. And the only solution that the people making these arguments can uh, envision, seemingly, is an individual one where um, each person reverts to being um, the arbiter of their own safety by holding a gun. And um, that is a really kind of lonely view of the world. And um, Hence it, the Grover Norquist quote. Is that what you're – yeah, because yeah. we're at an hour and a half. So if you're going to get okay. that, the quote is remarkable. So I just yeah. wanted to make sure that that you got it in because – just when you read it to me, I was like, I can't even believe that this man said this. Okay, uh, let's let's end with that then. What was the co- do you know what the context of the quote is from? I'm not sure. I believe it was a remark. He wasn't talking about guns, though, was he? No. Well, guns are actually a clause in the quote. Yeah, but was it in response to a shooting discussion, a discussion about shootings, or was it on something else entirely? Or was I, it just just general philosophy of life. I believe it was something else entirely, and it is sort of, but, okay, so this is the quote. And I'll say this briefly in introduction is, um, I do wish liberals, like myself, 
would listen more to what conservatives are telling us about their ideas of politics before moving on to the objecting. Um, we haven't been modeling that today, I guess, because we've been doing most of the objecting. But um, it's also good to just listen to what their priors are and what their ideas of freedom are. And that's what my article is mostly about. But anyway, Grover Norquist made this statement. My ideal citizen, so this is an ideal of citizenship, which he is presenting us with. My ideal citizen is the self-employed, homeschooling, IRA-owning guy with a concealed carry permit, because that person doesn't need the goddamn government for anything. So... How is that a citizen of any, how is that a citizen? Indeed. Um, because what he, his ideal citizen is defined by what he's excluded from, by what he doesn't need from the larger society, right? But how is that not to somebody in the state of nature? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> I mean, he's, so he's self-employed. Uh, he's, so he's not, embedded into the economy in the usual way through employment, through being part of a business. He's homeschooling. So he's not part of the educational system. He's IRA owning again, a certain kind of into economic uh, independence, although somebody has to put together the IRA. Uh, and he has a concealed carry permit, meaning he doesn't rely on the police in the same way we all do. So it's, it, it's a completely individualized, atomized, if you want to talk that way, kind of person who's ideal insofar as he's excluded from all these kinds of very basic institutions of civil society, which make up just kind of the basic daily texture of life. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, I guess you'd call that an extreme libertarian, right? Yeah, or even libertarianism is a statist philosophy. This is almost a non-statist philosophy. This is a really extreme um, kind of uh, in the state of nature. Um, can I do my other money quote? Do we have time? Do whatever. Yes, that's fine. Yeah. You have another yeah. Is it another Norquist quote? No. This happened right after the Las Vegas shooting. Um, oh, is this the price of freedom quote? No, okay. <laughs> that was Bill O'Reilly, but this is Bill O'Reilly. That's right. The, the, the Las Vegas massacre is the price of freedom. Right. Yeah. But um, so the question we're asking is, do the people who make these really extreme conservative arguments even want a civil society at all? Or do they just want to live in a kind of state of nature? Well, right after the Las Vegas uh, shooting, somebody on Sean Hannity's show suggests that we should live more like gazelles. Um, where he said... You mean um, getting eaten by lions all the time? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. Um, where Wait, I'd rather be the lion. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he, he basically suggested that we should go through... Um, life like a gazelle with our ears twitching, looking around for threats, showing situational awareness, because there's always going to be somebody who could come in and be a threat to us. And he was suggesting that 
the victims at the Las Vegas uh, shooting should have been more gazelle-like and more aware of uh, potential shooters, I suppose. But he said the gazelles don't ju- don't show up at the waterhole completely clueless, looking at his cell phone. <laughs> gazelles looking at cell phones. Completely clueless, looking at his cell phone with no idea where the bad guy's going to come from. Um, and then he said the gazelles know how to re- how to act, not just react. They know where the bad guy is coming from. And, and that's why they're constantly looking, observing, and then if something happens, they react. So this is going so far to say is we should act like animals. Why do these people always talk like eight-year-olds? Bad guy. Who the fuck talks like that after they're eight, after they're seven or eight, after they stop playing cops and robbers? I yeah. mean, for God's sake, I, just the language of it strikes me as so infantile and, 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 unreflective um but but you know i i guess i just i'm 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 chafing a little bit against calling these people conservatives um um uh conservatives more than liberals believe in public authority right, right. and in institutions right i mean the, a, a conservative who doesn't believe in institutions has no faith in institutions is not by definition it seems to me a conservative and these all strike me as being, you know, either whack job libertarians, um, uh, which to me seems to me to be a deformation, a deformation of liberalism, not anything conservative. I never understood why libertarians were called conservatives. Right. Um, do you want to? Do you want to get that? Yeah. Here. Will it stop? Uh, hey. Just hung up on them. You actually have a la- you actually have a landline still. That's amazing. Um, um, you know, in other words, these, these all this all strikes me as the utterances of of radical radical libertarians, not conservatives. Um, not I don't know that it matters so much what we call people, but but I, I can just see some conservatives saying, "Wait a minute, you know, I don't not believe in institutions. I don't not believe in you know authority. I don't not believe you know." Uh, it's just very odd to speak of conservatives who have no belief in authority and no belief in institutions. Right. I mean, well, but these same people, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, will now on gun control make these seemingly extremely libertarian arguments. And then when it comes to sort of cultural issues, and, then they all of a sudden believe in the institutions again. Yes, they do. <laughs> right. but, which, it, it's incoherent, but you have to delineate yeah. the incoherence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I don't know. I. Because I used to be a conservative and because I have a tremendous respect for and even affection for the intellectual tradition, um, I mean, I'm a pretty big Michael Oakeshott fan. I'm a pretty big, uh, I'm a pretty big T.S. Eliot fan. Uh, you hear you want an obscure one, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the English romantic poet. Also wrote one of the most important conservative, uh, I don't know, call it manifestos, whatever it's called, on the constitution of church and state. Um, and, um, I just, I, I resent saddling conservatives with, 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 with a lowbrow moron like Sean Hannity. Um, um, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a, I think it's a, a slander on the tradition to associate, you know, a scumbag like Bill O'Reilly. Um, well, I, I already the tradition of Oakshot and Burke and Elliot and Coleridge, right? Um, um, I, 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 and you know what I mean? I just, 
I don't know. I think that lib- people on our side do this too much. Um, we identify the, the conservatives with their with their worst, most ridiculous representatives, rather than their their, their the, the very venerable tradition that that they come from. If if indeed uh, they do, well, uh, I, well, that let me address because I don't want to just I don't want it to be said that I picked. Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity because they were the worst representative. I picked them because they're some of the most popular and influential. Yeah, fair enough. And Rush Limbaugh, you'd add him. Um, but I do, following what you said, I would not try to hold Robert George or Roger Scruton responsible for what um, Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity said. Um, but the, the one thing that I will say is um, – Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly are capable of sounding like Roger C- Roger Scruton or Robert George under certain circumstances on certain, certain issues. Circumstances. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You have to understand that yeah. part of their brain yeah. to get where they come from. Well, just like Maxine Waters can sound like John Stuart Mill sometimes. Um, um, I suspect rarely, um, <laughs> but uh, but um, you know she's. Uh, He's not someone I would want to, as a liberal, to be saddled with um, 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 if somebody was uh, doing a critique. Um, well, the, I think we covered the gun thing pretty well, and, and in terms of the social contract, um, I, 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 um, there's more to talk about. I'm actually now more and more thinking that I really do want to do something on conservatism, but the trouble really is just going to be who the hell I'm going to do it with. Um, um, and maybe uh, you can help me in that regard. I, people in the in the comments have already given me recommendations. The problem is, is that I just have this constant sticking point. Is that I really just don't think too many, if any, of the American thinkers uh, are conservative, um, um, but rather liberal or reactionary or libertarian or something like that. But I'll have to think about it some more. Um, was there anything else you wanted to finish up with before we uh, wrap it? No, I finished a couple of times, so I think that should be enough. Um, um, David Ottlinger, thank you very much. And I look forward to doing uh, whatever we do next. Um, um, I don't know where we should go next. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like, like we should do something. There's something else historical that we should do, but I mean, we did Kant, we did, we did uh, liberalism, uh, we did a big two-parter, um, um, but I feel like there's more in the historical tradition we could mine. Uh, so maybe you and I will behind the scenes have to talk about what we might do next. All right. We'll all do right, it. my friend. All right. Then. All right. Take care. Goodbye. See you all next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.